0: Go. Well, good morning, family. Good morning. There's somebody. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate that. No, oh, there. Thank you, Crystal. Do I have any others? Good morning. Thank you. All right. That'll do it. We'll be here all day. Good morning, Jesse. Good to see you, Ben. Well, thanks for being here this morning. Um, we're going to finish up. I delayed last week because I got bogged down in some of the details of um, planning churches locally and abroad. So this morning, we're going to finish up with our core value of um, serving, reaching our community in uh, justice and mercy. So let's please pray. Lord, as we come to the topic this morning, it's just a, a reminder, um, whether we feel it or whether We're so tied up with our lives that we forget that we live in a broken, fallen world in which there is an incredible amount of suffering and sadness and injustice. And even when justice is served, uh, there's still something that remains unresolved. And so we pray as we seek to live out the uh, implications of the kingdom of God, and we seek to do that in faith, we pray, Lord, and we long for the day uh, when Christ will return, and in ways that we can't quite understand or fathom, that you will make all things new, and all things will be well, and all manner of things will be well. What a miracle it will be to see the resurrection of the world, and have all of the tears wiped from our eyes, and all the brokenness of our heart be repaired. And Lord, we ask that even so come Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. All right, as I mentioned, core value number three. I'm just going to jump right in. We're getting started a little late, which is fine. I'm sorry, I'm getting frog in my throat. Reach the world. We're on the last one here by serving communities in mercy and justice. What I'd like to do is to root us in a text, look at Isaiah 58. If you'll turn there, please. Reminder, Isaiah is written at a time where the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen, the southern kingdom is going to be overcome. It's going to, going to be overthrown by Babylon and go into exile. And the issue of justice and the issue of keeping God's law, just want to remind us that God's law, as he gave it, and the overarching principle of God's law is love. Um, that, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in, in the sermon I did on love, that God's law is not an arb- arbitrary set of rules of a, of a distant, universal sovereign. But rather, God is himself love, and therefore his rules, his regulations, his commandments, his statutes, these things are intended to create a world uh, in which there is human flourishing, in which which there is joy, in which there is an ability to worship and to love one another. And, of course, the fall came and broke all of that. Our sin and rebellion uh, spoiled and corrupted God's good world. And so when we come to Isaiah 58, the issue of the law and keeping the law and, of course, there are elements of the law that we scratch our head and say, what does that really have to do with justice or flourishing? And we get into the ceremonial law and the dietary laws, like, how is that really loving? But really what is at the heart of all this is what we call a moral law. And it's a law which reflects the goodness, the, the, the kindness, the mercy of God uh, that we are supposed to show to one another, and human history shows us that there's a proclivity in all of the human race to do evil, and uh, that there's power and and there 's oppression and there 's corruption and as I, I, I think it 's deeply convicting what Jordan Peterson says that statistically, if we were in Nazi Germany, we would be on the wrong side that, that it 's great rarity. That the human spirit somehow um, climbs out of the morass of evil and does the right thing. It's just, it's unusual. And all of us want to be that guy standing there while everybody's saluting your new background photo there on on Facebook. We all like to think we're that guy who's standing there, you know, uh, defiant against the powers that be. Um, But there's so many factors of our own weakness, of threats, of danger to our family of our own well-being that uh, that can corrode our moral integrity so quickly And human history just shows that that we are so weak and we are so frail Uh, we're we're like the Peter who says though all others deny you Lord I will never deny you and then wind up on the night of his betrayal denying him three times Um, and Peter loved Jesus and he loved the Lord but he failed Um, and the Lord graciously restores him. So, anyway, um, so Isaiah 58 is so when we talk about the law and the keeping of God's statutes and God's command, the, the, God's purpose in this is not to ruin our fun, but to create a context in which there's human flourishing. And that's really what was to happen in Israel through the law. And it's ultimately what is to be in the church. That being in the church has to do with being reparented by a good father. Uh, so that we would be light and salt and representatives in the earth and, and desire justice and uh, the lifting up of the downcast and the the release of the the unjust unjustly imprisoned prisoner and and all the rest. So with that in mind, Isaiah fifty eight, uh, God is is has put Israel and this is another example of kind of a legal charge where God has put. Israel is putting them on the stand and charging them with with certain things and telling them what they've done wrong, but then also gives um, a way out and says like, judgment hasn't come yet, punishment hasn't come yet, but there are are ways still to remedy this thing that you're doing. And that's what we find in, in Isaiah 58. And so the prophet says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. So it's the introduction there of a bold call to listen. Listen to what my charges are and my people. And then in verse 2, we see that the real problem is a privatized spirituality. A spirituality that is for my good, my peace, my prosperity, with relative indifference of what that spirituality does um, in the life of others. Verse two, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. And if you take that verse by itself out of context, that sounds like that's the kind of people you want to be. Those are the kind of people that we want to be, to seek him daily, to delight to know his ways. And so they have all of the appearances of passionately pursuing God but there's something fundamentally wrong Um, and we find that in verse three through five why and here's their question why have we fasted and so this is a this is a transactional spirituality we've done these things we seek you daily we delight in your ways but now there's actually a reverse charge where Israel is claiming this against Yahweh why have we fasted and you don't see it you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. And so here they are pursuing him because they want blessing. Meanwhile, they're doing the wrong things. They are oppressing people. They are doing the wrong thing. And I and, and honestly, I can't help reading this text about without thinking about slave owners in America who would have oppressed their slaves and treated them badly and had all of the trappings of, of Christianity and of spirituality, and we're doing all these things. And, and it's that. I just finished watching Reacher. And uh, it's, a, it's another example of, of the trope, of the motif of a small, relatively white town, well, all white town, really, doing what they do and having this appearance of spirituality and of outward goodness and righteousness, but inside the internals are like completely corrupt and wrong, and it's just this proclivity, so it's not, and that's just not white people, that happens all over the world and all different nationalities, but, but it's this trope of, we're doing all these things, we're pleasing God, we're doing all this, but there's an internal corruption, and that corruption is seen in doing so to do their own business, they fast, but it's transactional. And oppress all your workers. Verse 4, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. So again, it's this its this outward expression and, and a facade of, of religiosity. But internally, there's just this incredible selfishness. And really, the oppression that happens here and the wickedness and striking with a fist is for their own economic benefit. I mean, that's really what drives is driving all of this, is we're doing this to people so that we would be more, uh, live a life of greater pleasure. Verse 5, is such, is this kind of the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord, like you think in this context your fasting and humbling yourself like means anything to me? Like you think that's going to manipulate me? You think that I'm going to like acknowledge that despite your oppression and your evil and your injustice and your overlooking even the injustices of others? You, you just think that fasting's going to make up for that? That seeking me daily and reading the Bible and doing all you think that's going to make up for this this stuff that that you know is going on? And then he flips it and says, I'll tell you what kind of fast I want. Verse uh, six through 14 is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke. And this is all slavery bondage language to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. And so the scenario is here are people who are poor, oppressed, can't fend for themselves, don't have a voice in the judicial system or whatever, um, who don't have power and influence and a networking of ability to to manipulate their life and bring out a, a better outcome. And instead of helping them, you are draining them, using them, abusing them, oppressing them, ignoring them, all of this. So it's a a relative indifference. So it's the upper class, if you will, ignoring the lower class and just going, but at least we fast, at least we pray, at least we read our Bibles, at least we have the right God. But if you will do this, care for them, not take from them, but give to them, not further squeeze the life and vibrancy out of them, but to to care for them and love them and do good to them. Verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And I couldn't help, as I was reviewing this this morning, to think of Jesus saying, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That there is probably an allusion here to when Jesus says you are the light of the world to the issue of justice and of mercy. He says, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then, verse nine, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. It's like you want God to hear you do the right thing. You shall cry and he will say, here I am right now. They're crying out to him, seeking him and they can't find him. Where are you? It's like you're not going to find me till you do the right thing. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. And and here we have a people who are saying the world is so dark. The world is so dark. It's so gloomy and dark and there's such evil. And he's like, you're the light that's to be turned on. Do something about it. Verse 11, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, referring probably to Eden. Then you will be the paradise whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord, honorable. If you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and will make you to ride on the heights of the earth. And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father in the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And without going into it, I've taught on this in detail. What I think the essence here is stop doing things that you enjoy. We heard of this yesterday from Tyler's excellent message on the theology of play That it's not giving us details about what kind of entertainment to have, what kind of games or puzzles to play with. Here it's the issue, and I think this goes all the way back to Exodus, that one of the reasons after creation you shall keep the Sabbath day holy because God created the world and so on. But in the second giving in the Deuteronomy version of that is like, do this, you shall not work, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor the animals, nor the stranger. That for and, and, he's, and the reasoning he gives is because you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. Like, slaves don't get days off. They're like machines that are worked until they're dead or useless, and then they get replaced by another cog in the machine. And so I think what's going on here is an injustice that they're not giving. They're they're so economically driven. They don't give their servants, their slaves, days off to be refreshed and to, to, uh, to, to get restored. And he says, you yourselves were slaves. That's the reason you should give people a day off, your manservant, your maidservant. So I think that's more about what's going on here is like there's no day off for them. They're still doing all of the things that keep people working on their Sabbath. So what I see here is is kind of a paradigm that, that not only tells us what the problem with Israel is, but also kind of sets the tone in the New Testament for a whole array of things. And, and, and the idea that we can have a spirituality that is about my own personal peace and prosperity only, and for my good, and it's a privatized Christianity, and it really doesn't matter about those around me, I think these apply. And so what we then look to is we can trace out the applications of this in the context of the New Testament uh, church in the Gospels, Acts, and Epistles of how they applied this principle and what it looks like when it's not a national righteousness, but a local um, local expressions of the kingdom in these things called local churches How that's worked out, how justice and mercy is worked out uh, under the new covenant, since we don't have the laws behind us, since we don't have, you know, we're not, the church is not in control of the the civil authorities and and so on. Uh, But what does that look like for the New Testament church? We see that in the New Testament, how they actually work this principle out, and we see it everywhere. So I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. I've I've taught on this before, and I just don't have time to go through all the passage, but I want to kind of give a biblical theological overview of why uh, there ought to be concern for biblical mercy and justice. Notice I'm, I'm avoiding the term social justice, not because I think that concern about justice in the social realm is unimportant, but because that's a specific term that's used to mean specific things in our day. So I'm going to just rest on uh, and start fresh with biblical mercy and justice so we can at least agree on this, uh, on the terms here. So, first of all, the consequences of the fall, Genesis 3 through 11, shows us that breaking God's law brings about murder. It brings about uh, uh, misery in families. It brings about violence. It brings about drunkenness. It brings about things that break down social uh, mores and cultural um, um, safety nets that help a culture to flu- flourish and people to flourish. And Genesis 3 through 11 is the unraveling—the uh, story of the unraveling of the human race in rebellion against God's good laws. And then we find in Deuteronomy 10, the commands of the law are to love neighbor, are to do good. Um, so there's the consequences of fall. That's why if we're concerned about uh, the restoration, if you will, of God's good world. We should be concerned for mercy and justice. Uh, the commands of the law tell us that we should be concerned for neighbor and care and love our neighbor. Uh, in, in point three, the call of the poets and the prophets, Micah 6.8, uh, we know, know this, to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. This is what the Lord requires of us. Uh, and so it's the call we saw in Isaiah. It's throughout the prophets, like this, this is the major thing in Israel. Like above everything else, it is the breaking of God's law through oppression, through injustice. I mean, that's the thing that, that Israel is condemned for, that the leaders, the shepherds of Israel, um, it, it is taking advantage of those who can't defend themselves. I mean, this is just the dominant theme. Um, and, 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 and this is the thing that God condemns them on over and over and over again. It's not necessarily, and it does have to do with idolatry, it does have to do with you know, worshiping other gods. But it, it was in their drifting from god, god to other gods. Those other gods had different laws and different expectations and different things that you could do, a different set of rules. And it was as they lived according to those rules, that was the problem. It, was, it wasn't just like you have another god or an image or something. Is that these gods have contrary things like, you know, this life is a life full of karma-like experiences and if you got it you keep it and the poor there's something wrong with them the gods hate them and so your prosperity shows that the gods love you your poverty shows that god hates you and uh, yahweh is just very different than than the gods of the cultures around them and so we have this constant call from the poets and the prophets to come back to yahweh his good law because worshiping these other gods bring about these bad effects of hatred for the, these, these oppressed peoples. And then number four, the teaching and example of Jesus. In Matthew twenty three twenty three, <clears throat> we have uh, the Lord says this, Matthew twenty three twenty three, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And this is similar to the Isaiah 58 passage. For you tithe mint and dill and, dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So, so they're both God's law, tithing, and then these other matters. And they're like very persnickety. Like they're going in their little herb garden. And they're snipping off, you know, the mint and dill and cumin. And saying, we, we tithe not only of our crops, but also of, of our herb gardens. And like we are so meticulous in the keeping of God's law. And he says, you're doing this. And outwardly, it looks very meticulous. He said, the problem is you are neglecting what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, these you should have done without neglecting the other. So Jesus says that the, weighty, the weightiest matters of the law in regards to the topic he's talking about are justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then he calls them blind guides straining out a gnat, and swallowing a camel. They, th- they think by straining out this gnat of the tithing of their herbs that that, like, is is good. And meanwhile, they're swallowing this camel of un- misunderstanding what the law is even about. Even, even tithing was intended to care for the poor and to care for the Levites and to care for other people. It, was, it wasn't that God needed their money, you know, Throw it up in the air and see how much he keeps. The tithing itself was for the care and the prosperity of Israel within the system of of mutual care. Number five, the teaching and example of the apostles continues this issue of mercy, of justice. And really, those are two different categories. Uh, But uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians 6.10 That's five, there's six, six, ten. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. And what is good? What does the Lord require? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. So they're they're still concerned with it uh, in the New Testament. It's not like once you're right with Jesus and you understand justification by faith— then, you know, as long as you're comfortable, everything is okay. No, there's still this, this interest and uh, expectation to do good to all, and especially those of the household of faith. Number six, the standard of the final judgment. And by standard, I mean what, what Jesus himself in Matthew 25, at least in this account, that the emphasis in the judgment that Jesus makes in Matthew 25 is not what you know, but what you have done. And so in Matthew 25, in this particular expression and account of what the judgment looks like, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then there are these clauses of, and here's the reason for your entrance. Now, he, he doesn't tell us everything theologically. He doesn't talk about justification by faith. He doesn't talk about a lot of things. That's clearly not his emphasis here. The emphasis of this particular sermon is what you do will play a part in the day of judgment and what happens to, to us, to you, to us. That's clearly the emphasis of this particular sermon by Jesus or this particular, um, if we call it a sermon. Verse 35, enter in for this kingdom that has been prepared for you. For, here's the reason, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And of course, they answer, Lord, when do we see you? And he says, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. So in this account, Jesus doesn't say, enter into the kingdom. In this particular account, and I don't want to negate all of this, but his particular account isn't. Enter into the kingdom because you believed in me by faith alone. Because the blood of my righteousness has covered you. Both of which are true. Because you understood the doctrine of the Trinity. Because you went to the right kind of church and had the right kind of worship. He he doesn't put it on belief or manners of worship. In this account, in this sermon, his emphasis is clearly... And and the application of this coming out of it is not, oh, well, I don't want to be too sarcastic. The application of this is what we do is expressed and is in some ways tied in as a means to what will happen in the day of judgment. I'll leave it there. And so the standard of final judgment, at least in this account, has to do with feeding the hungry giving thir- a drink to the thirsty, welcoming strangers, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, um, and visiting the prisoner. So, and that's New Testament. And then what, what, what do we see in the New Testament as the epistles unfold is that's exactly what they're doing. They're caring for widows and orphans. James says this is true religion to care for the, visit the orphan and widows and their troubles and to keep oneself unspotted from the world, do good to all people, um, how to deal with those who were slaves at that time and how to treat them and not oppress them and care for them and, and on and on. The New Testament unfolds this issue of mercy and justice. It's very concerned, not just with right belief about God, but right behavior toward other people, particularly those uh, in, these, in these particular classes. And then seventh, the promise of the world to come. We're laboring in, in hope for the promise of the world to come. In Revelation chapter 21, we read this, verses 1 through 4. Because it can be very exhausting. If we take this seriously, it can be exhausting. It can be overwhelming because there are so many needs in the world. And so many people have tried for so long. And it seems to have made so little difference on a large scale and it 's easy just to give up what what difference can we can I as an individual make what what difference can we as a church make we're, make we 're so small uh, what what difference can whoever make well well we we are participating, no matter how small or how large, into something that will will have a fruit and a harvest of righteousness in the age to come, and we read what that looks like in in revelation chapter 21 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth and i'm so glad there's not just a new heaven but i'm so glad there's a new earth and that new earth according to romans and according to peter is not a a a scrapped present world and the creation of a, a, a scrapped old earth and in a new earth but is the old earth renewed and resurrected and redeemed? And so it's this new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea is no more. By the way, it doesn't mean there's not going to be the ocean or the seas or whatever. Sea is a symbol for chaos. That's where the Leviathan lives. That's where the depths and darknesses are. It's it's poetic symbology for the darkness, and that's where the serpent comes from, is the sea of darkness. And it's saying there's no, there's no more evil. There's no more sea there. So I don't read that and say, well, there's no more bodies of water. It's all just land or something like that. No, it, it's saying that the sea and the Leviathan and chaos that corrupted this world is gone. It's passed away. The sea is no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem. And so here's this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. And there's so much symbology here. It's like coming down. It's like, ah! And I, I still remember. I still remember a wedding that I did 10, 11 years ago. And being able to see both the groom's face and the bride as she walked in. And, and his face watching her walk in is one of the, my clearest memories I have from any wedding, just watching watching his face um, and his bride adorned and watching her walk in. That's, that's, that's what I remember when I, when I read this. So she's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Literally, it's something like he will wipe the tears from out of their eyes. And it's, and it's tears of personal suffering. It's tears of that have been shed for the brokenness of the world. It's the tears shed over the loss of a loved one. It's the tears shed... Over injustice, it's the tears shed over all manner of suffering and all kinds of things. Literally all those tears are wiped out of their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. And what are the things that cause mourning and crying and pain? Injustice, starvation, misery, disease, oppression, slavery, He will wipe away those tears. Death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so it's understanding that we are laboring now, however insignificant it feels, whether it's helping one person or five people or 10 people or 20 people or 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people. That's not really for us to figure out. It's for us to be faithful where we are and with the opportunities that we have. Um, so it's it's kind of like it's the it's like the gifting. It's not for us. It's not for us to determine the outcome of who we can help. It's to be faithful with those around us, and that we have access to to do the best we can with them, knowing that we're headed toward this day where the tears will be wiped away. So that's kind of a biblical overview of justice, of mercy. Someone someone may raise the question, at least in certain theological circles, where's the gospel in all of this? And I think one of the problems that we face is understanding what the gospel is. And some people might limit the gospel to, to the, the kind of ser- soteriological, salvific, um, Belief statements that are necessary to be justified. So, faith alone, Christ alone. So the good, you know, the gospel is the good news of Jesus dying for our sins, so that we can be reconciled to God. Which is true. That's true. That is the gospel. But in preaching through Matthew, I realized that Jesus uses the gospel in a much broader, um, contextual way. Over and over and over again. It's not just the gospel of justification, which is usually what reformed folks think of. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And start paying attention to that particular phraseology in Matthew and look for it in Luke and look for it. It's not used so much in the epistles, but in in the gospels. And, well, it's used some there. But looking for the gospel. And so there is this gospel of how we are justified and made right with God. But that's in the context to put us into this good news of the kingdom that has a king and that has righteous laws and has uh, blessings and community in it. And so, in my estimation, at least I in the early days thought so much about the gospel and and you know together for the gospel is about this particular point of doctrine of justification, and and that's certainly the foundation and point of it. Uh, primary point of how we get in, but the gospel of the kingdom is this this larger issue. And so what is the the priority of the gospel? Someone could say, well, we got to be careful with this because it can get out of hand. And so just a couple of qualifications. And and I I think, well, anyway, Um, it's not an either-or. What is the priority, the gospel or mercy and justice? And I just suggest from Jesus' own expression of what judgment day is and where we're headed and, and the consequences of the fall and all those points, that's not either or, but it's both of these things with an undergirding of what is eternal. Now, you know, well, God's more concerned about people's souls than they, they, he is their bodies. What does that mean? More relative to what? How much more? How much, how much does the Bible, I mean, does the Bible talk that way? Like, does Jesus talk that way? Do the apostles talk that way? Do they say, do they put this emphasis so much in the realm of spiritual and the soul that, that it, you know, we're going to see some of this in 2 Corinthians, which is, is the care of the Macedonians and the Corinthians for the, the, those in a famine and plague in, in the Jerusalem area, in the Judean area. And he and, and he, uses, he uses the spiritual... Christ, though he was rich, became poor that we through his poverty might become rich and therefore give this money you promised to care for these people. And so it's not this like bifurcated spiritual, physical. It's like there's it's this integrated, mixed in like the spiritual, therefore the physical. And there's always that therefore. And the idea of, well, we should be concerned about the spiritual and like this. This other thing is is unbound to the spiritual and is not you know affected by or does it affect this it's like no the, the two are two are always integrated because god created us in body and in spirit so i would argue not for an either or but the physical undergirded by what is eternal and the eternal includes wiping away tears resurrection from the dead it is the eternal is itself physical and material all right. So while we are to put a priority on the eternal needs of others, like if 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 at the end of the day, and I think this is it's a false dilemma at the end of the day, would you rather preach the gospel or give somebody a sandwich? And I just think, like, in what kind of scenario are those the only two options? Like a terrorist group organization group comes in, holds a gun to your head and says, you've got one of two things you can do. You can hand the sandwich to that person who's starving or you can preach. I mean, it's just. It just becomes a... Re- Why? Why pick? Well, it's to show the priorities of the gospel. Well, it's the gospel of the kingdom and God cares for people and God creates the kingdom in order that we might be light, that our light might dawn on others. So, putting a priority in the eternal eternal needs of others? Okay, okay yes, yes, yes. But not to the neglect of the temporal needs of others. I, I don't know. Even that statement, I feel like I've almost conceded too much. (laughs) So, two possible ditches. Yes, the drift into a merely social gospel. Those who are worried about protecting the gospel, understandably, we have a history in our nation of this thing called the social gospel, which really did lose the gospel. It really did lose, at least in some quarters, the importance of understanding who God is and the doctrine of of the incarnation and the actual physical resurrection of Christ and became this Christian looking thing without doctrine and without biblical things that we are to believe and just doing good within nature and, and particularly in, in metropolitan areas uh, that that took place. And we still have that effect where you can have people using the name of Jesus who when it comes down to it, you ask them what they actually believe and it's very little Uh, other than Jesus being a good model and example of caring for the poor. Um, And that that would be in theologically liberal churches in the social gospel. So that's a possible ditch. But there's another ditch, I believe, which is the drift into a hyper-spiritualized, middle-class Christianity. Which just doesn't really give two cents about anybody else, or the uh, the poor, or whatever. And it becomes about me working hard, and it turns in, as again we heard yesterday in Tyler's excellent message, it becomes a, a, a Protestant work ethic where you, you, you work hard and you play hard and you uh, enjoy the fruit of your labors. And as Francis Schaeffer put, puts it, we become oriented toward our own personal peace and prosperity. And, and it just kind of ends there. And maybe if somebody, we see somebody really bad or something really happens and we can occasionally do that. Um, but, I, but I think... Well, no, I don't think that. Um, but anyway, the drift into a hyper-spiritualized gospel where it doesn't matter. As long as we preach the gospel, we have the right doctrine, we go to the right church, we hear the right kind of preaching, we have the right version of the Bible, whatever, then it doesn't, mercy and justice really don't matter. All right, so I'm going to skip past that. I'm going to skip past the applications other than, let me just read these, by serving communities. This is our core value. So based on all of that, We as RBC want to serve our communities wherever we work, live, work, play, worship, and you can throw study in there as well if you're a student. So it's by serving, serving them in mercy and justice. Like we want to do the right thing. We want to be kind to others. We want to care for others. We want to pay attention to others. Uh, So we want to serve communities. This is the reason for our promotion of various ministries, or at least our, yeah, promotion is probably the right word, but Platforming, or at least notification of various ministries, including Project Connect Nashville that Susan's very involved with, with Cottage Cove, which we've not done with, much with, uh, Nashville Rescue Mission, which we've uh, done some things with, and of course, Ben Grady works there. Um, we've done some things a few years ago, and, and some of this stuff... It, it's part my i 'll just speak for myself part of my philosophy is in in exposing you to these ministries My prayer is that the spirit would work in those of you who who he wants to participate in those ministries oh um, also thought compassionate international and the care for for children that amy 's presented to us before um, I don't. I, I don't personally like to be feel like I'm bullied or being sold something or being pressured to do something. I don't. My heart doesn't respond well to that. Um, so I think I have a, a disinclination toward like champion, championing a cause, like taking up one of these and then standing up every week and doing that. And that, maybe that's some of my own fault. Um, so that that's not what we do. We we are making presentations, praying, and asking for you to consider. Like, is there one of these that resonates with me in some way that I can serve in one of, uh, in one of these areas? And so, uh, we, I, it's kind of like throwing it on the wall and seeing what sticks kind of thing. Rather than, you know, pressing it on the wall, holding it on the wall, squishing it in the wall. Um, I don't respond well to that kind of presentation. Um, and so, probably am a bit soft when it comes to some of this. Our desire is to encourage and intermingle the varying gifts of Christ within his body and apply them in variety ways. And we believe that you have gifts as the body to serve in different ways. And sometimes it's not your season. Sometimes it is your season. Uh, Not everyone can or ought to do everything. Uh, One of the, the, the struggles as a pastor that I have is we have different people who have different giftings, who have different passions for different things. And everybody wants everybody else kind of in a good way to get on on that agenda because they're passionate about it. It's disappointing that other people aren't passionate about it. And so that's one of the struggles is you've got people who want you to be passionate like they are. But to me, that's a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit in them. Like, if that's your thing, then do that, man. Do that and tell it about others and look for others who might, the Spirit may, may stir to like Likewise, be passionate, do that. So, but what's clear is, and if you're particularly an empathetic person in every cause that you hear about, like breaks you and shatters you, uh, what you get caught up is in a treadmill of trying to do everything, exhausting yourself and not doing anything well. And that's where the discipline of exclusion comes in. It's like, I, I need to, at this point, I need to pick one thing and pray about that and commit myself to that. We're just so... Inundated with so many needs, local and abroad. All right, quickly. Some things that we do will be church wide and we will invite you into as we try to carry out this core value. Other things will be individual, things that you do in and of yourself that nobody else knows about. Um, so when I hear somebody criticize, or criticize, make the observation, well, why don't we do this as a church? My first question would be often, What are you doing about it yourself? And have you participated in this? And is there a way that you can invite other people into what you're doing rather than it needing to be a top-down? Like you don't need our permission to do justice and mercy. (laughs) Do it where you are. And then help us to figure out how we can promote and encourage that then as a larger church body. And then lastly, there's just the place of calling and vocation. Doing justice and mercy includes clocking in on time and only charging your employer for what you act, work you actually do. It means doing your job well and excellently. It means parenting with justice and with mercy. It means in the educational system, teaching things that are true and beautiful and good. It means doing what we can as a democracy to to. See that righteous laws are passed and and then righteous laws are applied it 's working in the medical field with integrity, doing engineering with excellence because if you don 't something 's going to collapse and kill people that's that 's anti mercy uh, building maintenance to care for people, to make people warm and comfortable uh, real estate to to have fair dealings in real estate, accounting what every field. Mercy and justice applies to every field, to everything that we can do. It is to penetrate every corner and crack and nook in our lives, not just going somewhere on a certain night of the week and doing something, but it is saturated within our parenting, within our homes, within our care for others, and our use of the Internet, and on and on and on. All right, well, thank you for that few minutes of uh, extra indulgence there. Um, of course, I have a captive audience, so it's not like you gave me permission. But let me pray, and if it's okay, we'll start about 10 minutes late. Is that okay, Tyler? Yeah. Is that all right, about 10 minutes late? Because Ben's not here, so asking your permission as well. What's that? No, no, no. I was, my fellow, Tracy, you know. Fellow elder, is that okay? About 10 minutes to give everybody? All right. Father, thank you for uh, your word. And we've talked about some heavy things this morning. We pray for the work of your Spirit in us to give us wisdom and, uh, or just to be faithful, to be salt and light in the many ways. I, I thank you for the many ways that I know people in our congregation are already doing these things personally, um, through Noonday, through Project Connect, through uh, many, many things, and doing. Their work excellently and without grumbling or complaining and being faithful uh, day in, day out, caring for children, doing all that we do, I just thank you that all of us have opportunity uh, to do mercy and justice. And I'm just reminded um, in this past week, my own experience, when mercy and justice are not given in parenting, how badly that goes. And so please, Lord, bless our time of worship. Bless our brother Rob as he brings the word to us this morning. Um, Anoint his lips, fill his heart with your spirit, and may we be filled with the glory of Christ as we seek to love one another and love you throughout our day.